Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, my brother Ali? Five Diggy Tribe Core Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles Peter Ghost. This is Ab Soul. This is K.O. And you listening to The Come Up Show, where that feel-good music lives. Hey. This is the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. What's going on? Welcome to The Come Up Show podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Martin Bauman. Today I'm talking to one of the most underrated artists in all of hip-hop. He can rap, he can produce... And he does both exceptionally well. My guest today is a member of what I like to refer to as the MMG you really need to pay attention to, Mellow Music Group. These guys make fantastic hip-hop, and they pretty much let you stream it all for free before deciding if you want to buy it or not, so there's no excuse not to check them out. On to the backstory, he was born in Prince George's County, Maryland, and now he spends his time between Brooklyn, Washington, and London, England. He's a member of the Low Budget Crew, Diamond District, and his album People Hear What They See was awarded the Best Hip-Hop Album of 2012 by iTunes UK. He's done work with everyone from Jazzy Jeff to The Foreign Exchange to Jay Live to Homeboy Sandman to Joey Badass, and he's remixed a lot more tracks, too. That's right, today I'm talking to Odyssey. I caught up with Odyssey to talk about spending his summers in Sudan growing up, early musical influences, his definition of success, and much more. Take a listen. I like to start by digging in a little bit and getting a sense of your background. So as I understand it, uh, your cousins were the ones who introduced you to hip-hop. Tell me about that scenario. Uh, My cousins used to go back and forth to New York often, and when they did, they would come back with records and (laughs) mixtapes. And prior to that, I had really no... uh, That was just my first introduction into hip-hop. Prior to that, I just pretty much listened to whatever my parents listened to. And my cousins really familiarized me with the hip-hop as a culture by bringing back um, rap magazines and posters and 12 inches. And they had the only, they were the only people I know who knew who had uh, two turntables and a mixer and a microphone. So not only did they come back with records, but they also came back with the culture, and that was my first introduction to it. What was the first album that would have really grabbed you, that they were showing you, where you were like, wow, this is something different? Uh, Midnight Marauders was my first record that really made me fall in love with hip-hop, and it's my favorite album to this day. And and what was it about that album? Um, it was, I think, the the melodies that they used, um, the, the jazz melodies, was one of the first times I really heard those type of melodies being sampled in hip-hop. And um, they they were more like characters to me as MCs more so than, like, aggressive personas, and I think that that's something I could relate to more. You mentioned, uh, just prior to talking about your cousins, you you were influenced as well by your parents their, and their musical influences. I know your mom uh, writes poetry, your dad gave you your first vinyl record. What kind of things were they introducing you to? Oh, my mother was introducing me to Fleetwood Mac and Carly Simon and... Um, uh, Kenny Rogers, she listened to a lot of different stuff. She wasn't really into a lot of soul music too much. And my father was all about soul and funk. He was introduced me to Marvin Gaye and Frankie Beverly and Mays and things like that. I read on, I think I read this on your website, that you spent summers in Khartoum in Sudan. What were those summers like? Well, those summers were, my summers spent in Sudan were great. You know, they were very eye-opening. But most importantly, they made me really appreciate everything that I had in the States when I came home. And they also um, 
changed my perspective on what I valued. So um, most of my peers' opinions didn't matter. I started at a very young age to kind of deem most of what kids my age were into as insignificant, and that still stuck to me to this day. I don't really care about what a lot of people care about, to be honest. Um, so Sudan really taught me to um, cover into bare necessities in life, you know, good conversation, food, shelter, something to drink, warmth, cold, whatever you need. You know, once those things are met and family is met, nothing else really matters. I want to ask about something else about uh, growing up for you. Uh, what significance does Parliament Funkadelic and more specifically Diaper Man have to you? Uh, Gary Scheider was my neighbor growing up. I grew up with his sons who were the same age as me. That's the first introduction I had into a studio environment, and he encouraged us to go into the studio as much as possible and play around and mess around and make music. So without really even knowing it, that was kind of like my grounds of cultivation, so to speak, and understanding um, the differences between the analog sound and digital and cutting records and making music for fun first as, you know, just a sheer hobby. That's where I got my start. And later on, you spent time at A Touch of Jazz Studios with Jazzy Jeff. What is your most cherished memory from that time? Uh, that's my first paycheck. That's definitely my most cherished memory. <laughs> the first time I got paid for making music. And and uh, and why was that so significant to you? Uh, it made me understand that I could make a living from music when I, I got paid the first time for that track. So I do, uh, yeah, I do want to talk about your project, Tangible Dream. And so I pulled this... From the description of this project, uh, you say, the only dreams I'm interested in are the ones I can grasp. It just so happens that anything you want bad enough can be obtained. Can you build on that a little bit? Um, sure, I can do my best to. I, I guess it was meaning to say that I only want what I can have, but you can have anything that you want, basically. In a nutshell is what that was saying. So if it's within your sight to have it, you can go after it if you want it bad enough, you can get it. I want to get into a couple of the different lines off of that album, some of the different songs, one of them being uh, Killing Time. One of the lines that you say is, science only answers how, religion only answers why, the two combined is the true design, so respect to God because he drew the lines. Uh, tell me about that line. Um, I'm a firm believer that a lot of issues that, that people have and quarrels with religion um, come from not understanding on how similar they are and especially a big conflict between people who deem themselves as scientific and people who deem themselves religious. And I, for one, see myself as both. And I have an understanding that um, it's not science's job to necessarily explain why things are the way they are. There's so many things in science that can't be explained. Um, and religion's job is to explain why. There's stories for us to live by to understand why life is the way it is. And when you combine the two, you really have a firm understanding on our existence on Earth and in Earth in general. And I respect that whatever you want to call it, a higher power is responsible for creating this mathematically perfect Earth that we inhabit, that everything that exists here is in a perfect balance in order for, existence, for creation to exist in the first place. And not just being in awe of that and at the same time understanding the science and the spirituality behind it at the same time. I want to ask about another song as well, Own Appeal. One of the lines in there you say is, 
The sun's still shining off the same old lessons. Then why does life feel like an educated guess? And my thoughts are like meals. I'm a sucker for the seconds. Uh, impressions got a lot of us stressing, but how we are perceived is more about a reflection. Uh, tell me about some of the lines in there. Well, it's just um, basically trying to explain that people make too many of their problems personal. And the things that they care about, they take personally. When, in fact, if you look at humanity historically, we've been experiencing the same emotional trials and tribulations since the dawn of humanity. Yet we always make ourselves out to believe that we're special and unique in what we're experiencing when, in fact, we're not. There's countless amounts of examples and scenarios throughout time to let us know that most of us are just going in accordance to life itself. And nothing you really stress is that big of a deal. Um, again, that's just a general philosophy of mine. I just don't really sweat too much of anything. Um, what's the line after that? I'm present. Um, um, my thoughts are like meals. I'm a sucker for the seconds. Is meaning that I, too, am a, a victim of just being a human being and being a hypocrite and not going with my first instincts and second-guessing things and overanalyzing things and understanding that I, um, I also may be taking things personal that aren't simply because I second-guess them and I, I harbor on thoughts. And uh, trying not to, to do so will make life a lot less stressful. Do you think it's possible to get out of that mind frame of, of thinking? Uh, I, mean, it's, it's, I mean, it's so easy to get caught up in your, your own problems and think that everything is such a big deal. Is it possible to, to have that perspective constantly? Um, I, for one, I feel like I'm doing a pretty good job of it. <laughs> yeah, I think I think it's possible. I mean, you know, people different spiritualities and faiths call it different things, reaching different levels of consciousness. But um, yeah, it's just being self-aware is a start, and that's something that's not too difficult to do. Uh, another line from that same song on appeal, you say, "How you grade yourself is the mark that will matter most to separate the heart of the strong and the battered folks." Uh, can you dig into that line? Um, I, I feel like. Uh, People live by other people's standards all too often. And when you as an individual live by someone else's standards, you're automatically setting yourself up for failure to be one of the better people. But the more you understand that your own standards are the only thing that matters, um, the stronger you'll be and, and, and the better you'll be at pursuing them and reaching your own standards. Because in the end, that's all that really matters, not some other somebody else's idea of success or Wealth or achievement, none of those things really matter as long as you yourself are content. How do you think that you came to learn these kinds of things? Is this something that, you know, when you, do you attribute this all the way back to those summers in Khartoum or are these things that you've picked up along the way? What what do you attribute that the most to? Um, honestly, all the way back to those summers, you know, when and seeing one side of my family, you know, when I went back to Sudan, happy with eating beans practically every day, you know, beans in the morning with eggs, beans in the afternoon with bread, and beans in the evening with some small piece of meat and something else, and then being significantly way happier than a lot of people that I knew growing up in the Western world and wearing flip-flops all day, all year long, and not having a pair of shoes, you know, in the whole house. And as long as the clothing was clean, nothing else really mattered. And... Those things really, really stayed with me and shaped who I was when I came back home 
to Prince George's County, Maryland, which is the wealthiest black county in the United States, and black people are the largest consumers in the United States. So you're looking at the, like the apex of consumption where I come from, where a lot of African Americans with a lot of money consuming a lot. So people had Sunday cars, and everyone's mom had a fur coat that she only wore to church on the weekends, and everybody skipped school to buy a pair of Jordans. Everybody had to have a haircut every week. Everybody had to have the newest this and the newest that and made fun of the kids who didn't and realizing how none of that shit matters at all. And most of those people today are not doing that well. And my life is a testament to that, uh, living in that paradox of existing in those two worlds. Yeah, so what is it like to to grow up and, and have a foot in kind of both worlds and, and balance that? Um, I can't consciously say I balanced it. I think I'm a product of my circumstances, and I know plenty of other um, uh, Sudanese Americans or children with African parents who and their children were raised in Western countries who either dive head in to the Western world or reject it completely and go to the Eastern world. I think I was just like a, a perfect mix of the two to kind of really um, have the balance. I don't, I can't say that I necessarily controlled the balance. I think it was more so just my circumstances and being an artist um, helped me have an objective eye on my circumstances versus being into a world of academia that most African parents stress on their children. I don't know if my perspective would have been the same. I do meet a lot of people who are first-generation Americans who have the same um, outlook as me, and then I meet a lot that don't. You know, I think I, I'm, I'm just a product of my circumstances, but I can't say that I'm necessarily responsible for the balance. At what point did you know that you wanted to be an artist? Uh, I knew I wanted to be an artist when people continuously told me that I should pursue it. And it was a hobby for me, and then that hobby turned into an obsession, and that obsession turned into a career. It, it was first told, it was put on me, people constantly telling me I should pursue it, and then I took their advice. I want to go uh, go back to a couple more lyrics. This one's from Interlude Flow. And what you say is, Lord knows you can't have the sweet without the bitter. The nosebleed seats will help you see the bigger picture. Uh, can you get into that line a little bit? Sure. I, I think we live in a generation today where people want to expedite stardom and shooting to the top and not understanding that the struggle and the ups and downs are what make everything worth it, and it makes you value when you do have something. Again, back to my upbringing, um, so much of my music is based around that, and it's when you see that struggle that you understand a series of things that in order to have happiness in, in the world that we exist in, especially in a capitalist country like the United States, it's at the price of somebody else. So your sweetness is... Uh, at the price of someone else's bitterness, oftentimes. And then also, it's the price of your own. You have to struggle a bit in order to achieve something. And anyone can relate to that, whether it's long hours studying for exams or putting in more than 40 hours at a new job to be noticed and, you know, or staying up all night working on music. There has to be a bit of sacrifice in order to get what you want out of this life. What about in your own experience? At what point... Did you feel uh, the furthest away from your dream? Oh well, I haven't. I haven't been far away from it, really ever. To be honest with you, I can't really relate to that. 
<laughs> once I knew this is what I wanted to do, I kept it close. And so you, you never got discouraged at any points or anything like that? No. People have tried to discourage me or tell me things that I've never cared about what they said, to be honest with you. <laughs> well, that makes you a better man than most, I guess. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the I want to get into a couple more lines. This one's from tomorrow today. Uh, what you say is, the lesser me ain't worthy of existing in the present. That brother had me messing with some shit that had me stressing. Can you tell me about that yeah. line? Um. Well, it, it comes from when I wasn't living up to my own musical expectation. You know, I got caught up with a lot of trying to please a lot of people around me and help out other artists' careers and um, juggle too many things and be a jack of all trades but a king at none. And I also worked so much musically that I neglected a lot of uh, my family members and my personal life, um, my girlfriend at the time, uh, you know, they suffered that during the, that period. And I gained a lot of weight at one point because I worked so hard and, and I wasn't. I ate one time a day at around five and then just worked and passed out. I didn't go outside, I didn't do anything, I didn't have a social life. And those things became stressful, stressful. You know, my mom was complaining she never saw me. My girlfriend was complaining I never did anything with her. My friends were you know, asked me why I'm not doing more for them. I wasn't eating right. And I just one day had an epiphany that I, was, I wasn't living up to my maximum potential, maximum potential, and I changed all of that. What, was, uh, what is the most important lesson that you've learned in music? Um, never ask anybody to do anything for you that you can't do yourself or at least have a firm understanding of. And, uh, and how... What what were the circumstances in that you learned that lesson, or why is that particularly important? Well, when you ask someone to do something for you without having an understanding for it, you don't have an understanding for them when you don't get the results you want, and you're more inclined to blame people for things that are your own fault, whether that be the marketing of a record or a tour or an album cover, etc. If you don't have an understanding on what it takes to create graphic work, or how many phone calls and interviews your booking agent has to go through in order to secure a show for you, or what your label has to do to hire a publicist, and the content that you have to deliver yourself in order for that publicist to um, properly work your album. If you have no understanding of those things, all you do is complain and blame the label for lack of sales, or blame the label for the fact that you're not your viewership or, or hits aren't large enough or blame your booking agent for the fact that you're not getting enough shows or paid enough, start to point a finger at everyone else. But when you have a firm understanding on what other people's jobs are, you can help assist them into getting you where you want to be, and you'll become more successful as a result. Let's talk about what's, uh, what's latest for you. What is, what's going to be the next uh, project that you're working on right now? Uh, right now, I'm gonna, when I finish this tour, I'm going to go home and work on my next solo album and I'm going to do an album with my band, Good Company. We're going to do a live album as well. Is, are there still any plans to do a, a producer's album? I know I'd read something about that for a while. I'm not really interested in doing one of those projects, to be honest with you. I, I don't really like to do projects that I can't tour. I like to know that the minute I make a project, I don't have to rely time-wise on getting waiting on verses from other artists, one, so that I can create quickly because I'm a fast worker. Two, I like to know that I can be heavily involved in the marketing, and the more artists you do, the more difficult it is. And three, I like to know that once that project is done, it can go on the road. 
and when you have a producer album, how do you tour it? You know, so it minimizes the amount of money you can make off of those records. It's great for diehard hip hop fans, but it's not good for my bank account. To be honest <laughs> what's uh, what about as far as Mellow Music Group goes? What's what's next for the label? What's coming out? Um, Mellow Music Group will continue to um, release quantity and quality simultaneously. We'll continue to break new artists and support artists that have created a cult following for themselves and continue to give fans really good projects consistently. That's what we do best, and we'll continue to do so. Uh, final question I have for you. What what do you want your legacy to be in hip-hop? I just got asked that question earlier today uh, in another interview. Uh, I want my legacy to be of an artist who worked for himself and defined his uh it made his own definition of success and lived to it without having to recognize his music. And that's what I want my legacy to be. All right, thanks. Uh, anything else, any final words from you? No, nothing whatsoever. Just thank you for listening to my music, and I hope everyone can change to do so. Thanks. I appreciate your time this evening. Uh, thank you. Well, there you have it. If you want to know more about Odyssey, go to thecomeupshow.com. You know the drill. We're on SoundCloud. Follow us there. Subscribe on iTunes, too. Leave a rating if you like the podcast. Let us know what you think of it, who you want to hear from. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Come Up Show. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman. Thank you for joining me. We'll see you next time.